Let's look now at Ruth chapter 2. We're marching through Ruth and um, kind of stalling in chapter 2. It's such a key chapter. And we're going to look at the first 18 verses of Ruth 2. Uh, so let's begin reading in verse 1. Now, for those that may be visiting, um, let me catch you up on the story a little bit. Uh, Naomi lost her husband, Elimelech, and then she lost her two sons who were married to Ruth and Orpah. And um, uh, Naomi is, has gone back to Bethlehem, and she told her daughter-in-laws to go back to um, their mothers and fathers and be, you know, resume their lives there in Moab. But uh, whereas Orpah, in tears and, and with great um, sadness, did she went back and, and to her family and stayed in Moab. Uh, but Ruth said, no, I'm coming with you, Naomi. Uh, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God, and, and I will die right there. And if I don't die right there, may God um, kill me, basically is what she said. Um, and so they come back to the land poor, having nothing, uh, having no husband, um, no children, nothing. And so we pick up in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go uh, to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. 
When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Let's pray together. Our great and mighty God, we need you this morning to see the truth of your gospel, to see what you have called us to as your people. Father, we need to be so taken by Jesus this morning, by his great salvation, by the beauty of what he's done for us in laying his life down for us to accomplish our salvation and reconcile us to you so that we might be of some good on this earth. Oh, Father, we are driven by fear. We are driven by control. We are driven by greed and selfishness and covetousness. Oh, Father, we are driven by pride and self-righteousness. And only you can heal us by your gospel. And yet your gospel is power to heal us. You say in your word, the gospel is the power of God unto, the, unto salvation for those who believe. And so, Father, this morning I pray that your gospel would enliven our hearts to think new thoughts, that we might live new lives. Father, that you might be glorified and this city might be changed and that the world might feel the impact. That's a mighty prayer. But we believe that you can do it. We know we can't. We know there's nothing special about us but you. And yet we are yours. So do something mighty with us. Father, I need you this morning to speak your word. You know my thoughts are in many directions over this text and over the topics that will be that I'll be preaching. Father, you know much is unsettled in my heart and mind, so I beg that your Holy Spirit would come and give me the words, give me the clarity. Father, I need you. We need you. And that's why we pause before we go to your word. Father, we lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I met this week with a man who has basically lost everything, and it really has little to do with him. Uh, He's lost his wife. Uh, He's lost custody of his children. Uh, He has lost his dream job simply because he, uh, after fighting for his marriage for so many years and pouring himself out for so many years, he simply is burned out and cannot go to work. So he's lost his dream job. He's lost his home. Uh, He thought that he would be in that home forever. He's having to move away from a city that he loves, a place where he thought he was going to be buried. And he looked at me in the midst of that and after telling me the story and giving me the details, and he said, all I really know, Richard, is that I'm a Christian and Jesus loves me. Where do we go when we've lost everything? Where do we go when we have no sense of direction? 
Where do we go when we've lost our identity? Because that's really where Ruth and Naomi are. That's definitely where Ruth is. These ladies have lost everything. Ruth has lost everything. So what do you do? What do you do your first day back in town? How do you move forward in a time where you can't really see forward? That's what I want us to consider this morning. And the first thing I want us to see, and we're only going to see two this morning, believe it or not, is that what we must do when we are in that situation is really simple. All we must do is love, work, and wait on God. Love, work, and wait on God. I mean, that's what Ruth does. It's amazing. In a time where, where she should just be drowning in self-pity, a time that she should go to her room and close the door and say, I'm done, what does she do? She enters this relationship. It's, it's weird. It's unprecedented. There's, there's no precedence for what uh, Ruth does with Naomi. She, she almost cuts a covenant with her. She almost marries her. It's, it's bizarre. It... it What she does, the very first thing she does, is she doesn't withdraw from society, but she gives herself away to somebody. And friends, there's a lesson there. You see, we were made, no matter what's going on in our lives, we cannot get away from the fact that we are the product of a God who exists as love. He is love. And so no matter what we're facing, no matter how drained we are, no matter whatever the circumstances, we cannot stop loving. We can't stop pouring ourselves out even when we feel as if we have nothing to pour out. Because we were made and we were made for the purpose of love and we see that in Ruth and it's beautiful. Dear friends, are you struggling right now? Are you consumed with your problems? Then take on someone else's problems. Isn't that counterintuitive? That's not what we want to do. And yet that's what Ruth does. And then she goes to work. (laughs) She wakes up and she's a woman. She is risking life. She's already being marginalized racially and culturally. She's a Moabite woman. It's ridiculous how many times we're told that from chapter 1 through chapter 2. In case we forget, she's a Moabite woman. In other words, she's a racial outcast. When she walks out of the door, she is a Moabite in an Israelite world, and she is immediately being racially and culturally profiled and racially and culturally marginalized. But she gets up and she goes to work. Unbelievable. She goes to work. And I think the last thing we see why she goes to work, Boaz tells us, he speaks of the Lord under whose wings Ruth has taken refuge. Isn't that beautiful in verse 12? Isn't that a beautiful picture? When you're facing tough times, when you're, when you're alone and you're isolated and you're marginalized and you feel like life is against you, don't you need a place to rest? God is that place to rest. It's under His wings that we go to take refuge. We don't self-medicate. We don't find somebody or, or some thrill or some activity. We get silent before God and we get under His wings and we let Him love on us. Isn't that beautiful? 
listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 55:22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You feel like nobody cares for you? The God of glory cares for you. He has your number. He is close to you. All He is waiting for you to do is to look toward Him. He cares for you. Do you feel burdened by the weight of the world? Listen to the God that we have from Isaiah 9. I love this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on His shoulders. Are you frustrated? Do you feel burdened by what's going on in our city and our, our country and our world? Well, guess what? It's not you. It's not on you to be burdened. Put it on the shoulders of the Lord because the government rests upon His shoulders, not your shoulders. Isn't that good news? And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, it will be established forever. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus can carry the burdens that you're carrying. You don't have to retreat. You don't have to self-medicate. You don't have to get lost in a book or a movie or sex or whatever it is or hobby or joy. Go to the Lord. You love, you work, and you wait. I love John 16:33. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. But take courage. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Love, work, and wait. And do it right where you are. During one of the recent incidents in our country that brought the racial tension yet again to the forefront, my good friend Ricky Jenkins, who is actually coming back from Chicago and, and, and pastoring uh, downtown, or excuse me, Fellowship Memphis, not just downtown Fellowship, but uh, he's going to be the teaching pastor and resident uh, scholar at uh, Fellowship Memphis. Uh, he's African American and uh, just an incredible young man. He tweeted this one day. He said, I can't solve racism in America, nor can government nor can movements, but Jesus can. Now catch this. And He can start with me and my family and my circle of influence. I think the danger of social media, the danger of instant notification on our phones, is that we are immediately notified with every tragedy in the world practically. I know that's an exaggeration, believe me. And yet it's really not. If you look at your phone all day long and through the night when you wake up, you have no, really no choice but to be overwhelmed and burdened. A two-year-old drowns in South Memphis. A whole economy, a whole country is collapsing across the world. The KKK and uh, those who are favoring bringing the Confederate flag down in South Carolina are facing each other off. And 
just on and on and on and on we can go. Someone shot on South Main two nights ago. Someone over, it's just overwhelming. And dear friends, we weren't made to carry the burdens of the world. But what we were made for is to get busy right where we are. To be focused in a real sense right where God has us. You see, Ruth didn't change racism and the marginalization and brutalization of women as a whole. She didn't do that in the whole country. She did it in one field. She did it in the field that she went to. And the city took note and it had an impact on that city too, but her focus was right here. She said, I can't change the world, but I can change where I am. I can influence where I am. And I must influence where I am. And she won converts by being what God called her to be and doing what God called her to do. Love, work, and wait on God. Listen to David. Man, he must have felt fragile and vulnerable and fear must have been knocking on the door of his heart as Saul is pursuing him to kill him. He's living in caves. He's ru- And yet listen to Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Mm. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Listen, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now notice the future implication of how God's going to ultimately fulfill the desires of our hearts. He's looking to that day when the evildoers, when the wrongdoers will be judged and when they will fade like grass and like herbs. that beautiful? The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Dear friends, don't get down or envious when the haters are hating. But love, work, and wait on the Lord. I love verses 11 through 12 because when Boaz notices Ruth, when he comes and exalts her, listen to what she says. All that you have done for me, uh, or excuse me, he, he, uh, Ruth comes to Boaz and says, Why are you blessing me? What's so special about me? And listen to what Boaz replies. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Ruth is surprised. You can see that she was not loving and working and waiting as some manipulative strategy to somehow say, okay, God, we've got a prosperity theology going here, so I do good and then you bless me. Come on, where are you? She's not doing that. She's not even thinking about the reward. She is loving, she is working, and she is waiting. She's waiting for God to lift her up. This is not some manipulation upon God. This is not some some doing good and loving and saying, okay, now you owe me, God. But this is just simply loving, working, and waiting. She genuinely doesn't get why he's being so kind to her. 
Where does God have you? Are you struggling as a parent? Are your hands in the air? I don't know how to do this. Love, work, and wait. <laughs> Is your marriage on the rocks? Are you, are you struggling in your marriage? You don't know how to do it. Love, work, wait on God. Are you out of work? Are you in work? Wherever you are, love, work, wait. Dear friends, this is what God calls us to do. And then secondly and finally, we are also, in times of great trouble, to leverage our blessings for the good of others. Leverage your blessings for the good of others. This is really interesting. Notice the contrast between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Naomi and Ruth are dirt poor. They don't know where their first meal is coming from. They've got nothing. They are vulnerable. They are marginalized. They are cast off to the side. And yet at the same time, Boaz is experiencing incredible prosperity. It is the harvest time. This is the greatest, most prosperous time for a landowner. And so he has more power, more influence, more uh, authority and prowess in the community than ever before. And friends, this is the normal course of things in a fallen world. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. And we also learn that it's not because that, that there's this disparity of those that have and, and those that have not because God loves some more than others. Because God says just the opposite. Jesus said, you know, my Father allows it, the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the wicked. So we can't look at our circumstances and say, oh, I've lost the favor of God. No. Where we must do our, our, our business in terms of, de- of deciding how God thinks about us is right there at the cross. It's not at our bank account. It's not what's going on in your life. It's going there and saying, I'm wealthy. Because God has given everything to me. His own Son. And yet in this disparity, God has told us how to walk. You see, we're either going to be in the, um, the throes of absolute loss, in the throes of absolute need, or we're going to be doing pretty good. And what God tells us as His people is that those that are doing pretty good, those that have should share with those that don't have. And that's his kingdom economy. He says, believer, um, if you're experiencing blessing, don't hoard um, over here in the corner and isolate yourself from the needs of those around you. Unfortunately, that is what we have done historically in Memphis. And I want to show us a few slides. I want this to be about as practical as it can be. And I know we have a lot of MTR people, and I hope I don't um, destroy um, these slides and the statistic given. Uh, but let's look at this just a minute. For those that don't know what MTR is, uh, it's Memphis Teacher Residency. And um, they recruit all over the country. They bring... Um, 
teachers in who will commit to um, submit to their program and and learn how to uh, teach in a Memphis public school. Um, And and they send teams of teachers into different schools, um, high-need, mostly underperforming schools, to bring about change there. And so to show the need in Memphis, uh, they, they start... Here, and there we go. Well, you can't really see that little thing, can you? Maybe a little bit. All right, for those that are familiar with the ACT test, um, if you're going to college and you're in this area, you pretty much have to take uh, the ACT. And so the highest score is a 36. If you just go in and guess, uh, you make a 12. And you have average freshmen making 28. That's hard to believe. Uh, The national average of 20. All right, let's go to the next one. So in Memphis, Tennessee, um, here's downtown, and this, I guess, is Collierville. Um, you have Poplar heading all the way out. If you've ever just driven Poplar or been on the bus and just ridden Poplar all the way out, uh, you can go from downtown to Collierville. Uh, North Memphis, South Memphis. All right. Well, the darker the shade, the higher the score. So you have 24s out here. And you have in North Memphis, 15, 16, 15, 16, 17, 14. And you follow this. The further east you go, the higher the scores get. All right, let's go to the next slide. Um, And so this is basically showing... um, the, the percentage of the score, 72% of those in the far east of our county in Memphis, 72% get um, 21 or higher. I believe that's what it's saying. Is that what it's saying? That's, what I'm, that's how I'm going to... Is that good? There we go. Uh, 9%, only 9% um, are getting 21 in North Memphis, 2% in South Memphis. Let's go to the next slide. This is has a deep correlation with unemployment. The darker the shade, the higher uh, density of unemployment. North Memphis, South Memphis, look how light it is out here and along the corridor from downtown uh, toward Poplar. Now, it also, let's go to the next slide, it also it has a correlation, uh, well, to income. Obviously, unemployment has a correlation to income, uh, but we see it there. Um, where's the money? Well, right there in, a, in the pocket of 3 at 103 and then all the way out east. Um, it also uh, has a lot to do with the makeup of the family. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, Single-parent households. Where are the largest concentration of single-parent households? Is it uh, a big surprise that it's in the poorer areas of north and south Memphis? Um, And so my question to you this morning, uh, that's the last one, I believe. Um, My question to you this morning is, how did we get that way? How did we get that way? How how did we um, get to the point where the wealth and the good education uh, and the stability of the family is practically um, completely separate from another demographic in Memphis. It's because of intentional and strategic moves. And I have to say, because Memphis is so highly churched, that it was strategic and intentional moves by God's people. And what 
those with resources have done is walled themselves off and isolated themselves from the needs of the city. And friends, if you look at the Bible, that is not the the flow and call of the Bible. And I'm going to be real fairly gentle with this because I want us to get this. I don't want this to be theatrical. Um, I don't want this to be dramatic. I just want you to hear the truth. Um, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, we, we see the gleaning laws uh, were, were commanded by God and put in place in Israel. And it was a very simple thing. Basically, the landowners, if you own land, and many did, you were allowed by God to go at harvest time to, to plow or to harvest one time, to take one sweep through your, uh, your fields, and you were to leave the rest for the poor to come and to glean, and that's what Ruth is doing. And so, whereas we cannot go into all the implications of this, and we don't know all the implications of this, uh, we're working through it, um, but, but a primary principle that we have to acknowledge it, that, that God was building into the, uh, his people and to his community and to his church, present-day church, was this. It's that God's people are not to work simply with their own needs and the needs of their family in view. That we are to work with others in view. Uh, We see it in the very covenant of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you know, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to give you all this blessing, all these blessings. But then he said this, and I'm going to bless the world through you. So why did God bless Abraham? So not just so that the Jews could be blessed, but so that the whole world could be blessed, Jew and Gentile. And that's why this terminology, you ought to go back and read the New Testament and pick up on whenever you, re, whenever you see Paul using the term Jew and Gentile. Uh, because what Paul is, is making abundantly clear is the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is, being, is coming to fruition in our day and we are certainly living proof of it. We are all blessed. They're prob- I know that we've got one. I know Jill Beaumont. I know you, you're Jewish. You, you tell me that every time I bring this up. Or we're raised in a Jewish home, and we, I'm sure we have others. But the overwhelming majority of us in this room, uh, we have been blessed because God blessed Abraham. And then if you come to the New Testament, you have to see that this is not just some irrelevant Old Testament principle Uh, that was kind of cool for Israel, but has no impact on us. Uh, But you see that it's an an Old Testament principle that really has its roots in the gospel. Uh, Because it doesn't diminish in the New Testament, but it actually um, explodes in the New Testament. And we see it primarily in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. Uh, I was just going to read verses 8 through 9, and that's probably all we're going to have on the screen, but I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 9. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going to put these glasses on. I know some said it's kind of distracting for me to do this, but uh, I'm getting to the point where I literally, I think Orchid said, Wicca, brother, you better wear your glasses, because I think I was holding my Bible like this. And he said, that looks weirder than putting on your glasses. So uh, I'm like, all right, here we go. All right, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed. That's weird. This is so weird. Their um, abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. My goodness, I'm telling you, as a pastor, let's have some of that, all right? Uh, and we actually do in our body. I'm, I was being a little dramatic there and theatrical, sorry. Um, and this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. And this is key. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What we're seeing here is that faith in the gospel of Jesus produces the tangible fruit of generosity, evidenced by the sacrificial giving of time, money, and friendship. It's not just money. You see, Boaz leverages his blessing so as to bless those in need. But he goes so far beyond that. That's all that the law demanded. The law just said, hey, harvest once, leave the rest. You know, harvest once, you can go eat, do whatever you want to do. But that's not what he did. He comes into his field and he notices Ruth and he says, who is this woman? He hears her story and he takes a personal interest in her. And and notice how he begins to build uh, um, uh, an atmosphere of support around her life. He didn't just say, hey, hope you don't drop dead in the, you know, the, the Bethlehem's heat. But he provides a way for her to get water. He says, look, I've told my guys... You know, you can go and you can pour from the vessels that uh, the young men have um, drawn from the well. And I've also told them not to lay a hand on you because you know how vulnerable single women are, especially around a bunch of young men. That's what he tells her. And then later that day, he invites her in for a meal. This was insane. And so what we see with Boaz is he is not just... He's not just doing the minimum that the law requires, but he is going far beyond that, and he understands that for someone to truly prosper, you have to get relationally involved. And that's what's so troubling about the maps that we just saw. And yet that's what's so encouraging by what I'm seeing in Memphis with MTR and streets and young life. I mean, there's so, so many good things going on. But it's also what encourages me about this body is that poverty and education and violence and all this stuff will never be legislated away. The, the, the solution is not legislation but love. And the only ones that are going to love long term are those that know the love of God, the church. 
And so, friends, we've got to direct our lives intentionally and strategically. What that means for us in this room is that every single one of us have, have, must ask the question, what does that mean for me? It's not, oh, the big donors and them just writing the check. No, it's, it's maybe big donors writing checks, but it's primarily everybody doing something and nobody being exalted for it. It's just simply Christianity. <laughs> it's an overflow of love. It's the very reason that the earth got created. Why did the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God, create this world? Because He could do no otherwise because He's love. It, this world exploded not out of need, but out of love. If you love, you've got to give yourself away. Why was Adam so miserable before Eve came? It wasn't that he didn't have somebody to meet his needs. It was that he didn't have somebody to give himself to and meet their needs. And notice what happens after Boaz gives to Ruth. What does she do? Oh, great, I've got mine. Now let me come over here. And No, she takes it all home and she gives it to Naomi. And Naomi goes, what? As we talked about last week, you know, she comes off of her her bed of depression and she's rejoicing. And see, that's how it's supposed to be. God blesses me so I can bless somebody else so they can bless somebody else. And you're saying, well, I just don't have much money. We're not just talking about money. Can you read? Do you know how that that's a blessing? Do you know how many children in the city can't read? Do you, are, are you an adult? <laughs> do you know how many children in this city don't have fathers and mothers? Uh, do you see it? it? It's not some extreme, it's just the simple things of looking at how God's blessed me and saying I'm going to take strategic, intentional moves to live my life in a long-term direction that's going to make a change right where I am. It may just be one person. You may never see it. But that's not what God... God doesn't call you to see it. He calls you to do it. Why? Because God's probably still waiting to see some results of all the love He's poured into you and me. <laughs> He's got to be pretty frustrated with Richard Reeves on most days. If he were in it for the result, I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry. I mean, if, if I'm the greatest product of His love, we're in trouble. You get it? It's not about result. It's not about, man, if I don't see it. Here it is. You know the grace of Christ. That though He was rich, He became poor for your sake. Now go be poor for somebody. Go be poor with your time. Go be poor with your education. You're, man, I have a PhD and here I am teaching a sixth grader who can barely read. You go be poor in that way. You take your Ph.D. and you change the life of a sixth grader or a second grader in a little cubicle and no one will ever see it. You go do that because that's what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that beautiful? Dear friends, where we must go is to the foot of the cross and see how wide and long and high and deep the blessings of God are upon us. And once we see that, once that's a reality to us, then we will not be able to help ourselves but to do so much more than just to allow those in need to come in and take a little bit our leftovers. But we'll say, look at everything God has given me and I don't deserve anything and therefore I must pour my life out.
So, dear friend, whether rich or poor this morning, we are to love, work, wait, and we are to bless somebody else with the way and in a way that God has blessed us. May God give us the strength and the power and the faith to do just that. Amen. Lord God, we rejoice. We rejoice in your word that you have spoken, that you have... It's not... Father, we're not where we are because you have been vague. We are where we are because our hearts are hard. And we want to hear what we want to hear. We want to believe what we want to believe. We want to do what we want to do. And we distort your word. And so, God, this morning I pray that you would just help us to see the simplicity of loving, working, waiting, blessing. Oh, God, would you make us a people that do just that. And, Father, I pray this moment that you would fill us with all the blessings of Christ, that we would see how blessed we are so that we might bless somebody else. Help us to spend time with you to be filled up, that we might go be poured out. God, only you can make it so. Make it so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.